Welcome to the HTH Church Podcast. We are a church in the heart of Hastings whose desire is to build communities of people who are so passionate about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and joining in with what Jesus is doing, that lives, families, and communities are changed and transformed one at a time. On this podcast, you can keep up to date with the latest talks from our Sunday services, as well as additional bonus episodes, which include conversations, interviews, devotions, and much more. If you'd like to find out more about the church, you can visit our website, hthchurch.org. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy this episode. As a kid, um, I was told the tale of the ankle grabber uh, by one of my siblings. The ankle grabber, a monster that lives under your bed and grabs you by the ankle when you're asleep and slowly pulls you under and gobbles you up. That was the ankle grabber. And needless to say, this story terrified me, especially because one day it came true. I was lying in bed late one night, uh, just trying to doze off, and then I felt my bedsheet just shifting ever so slightly, and it being pulled off me, off onto the, near, near the edge of the bed. It didn't quite go on the floor, but then... And then, and then I felt the, these icy cold tendrils, fingers, slowly but forcefully wrapping themselves around my ankle and starting to tug tug at my ankle and I froze with fear and then just as I was I I didn't want to move too fast as I didn't want to wake the fell beast in a fit of wrath so I slowly but carefully pulled the duvet back over myself and managed to just wriggle my ankle free and then curled up into a fetal position and I think eventually just quietly cried myself to sleep that was the ankle grabber And I hoped that it had all just been a horrible dream. But every night for years after, years and years after, every time I went to bed, I'd have to check under the bed for the ankle grabber first. Because if you don't check, he's going to get you. Now, it might not surprise you to find out that I am the youngest of four siblings. And just a few years ago, me and two of my other siblings were sat around at a family dinner. Uh, well, all of my siblings were there. And the, the three of us were chatting amongst us. And then we, this story came up about the ankle grabber. And we went, yeah, that, that happened to me as well. And we couldn't believe it. Each of us had survived an attack from the ankle grabber. And then my eldest brother, the fourth the, out of the four, the eldest one, was sat there quietly laughing, wetting himself laughing, as he realized that he'd managed to fool his three younger siblings for 20 years into thinking they'd survived an attack from the ankle grabber. And the thought of this powerful beast under the bed paralyzed me. The fear that I felt just, just completely locked me down. And fear is a paralyzing emotion, and one which is not uncommon these days. Just take the greatest issue of our time, climate change. Young people these days are increasingly worried and fearful of what the chief of the UN has recently dubbed, I think unhelpfully, global boiling. A recent study found that even a one degree increase in ambient temperature above the norm leads to a higher probability of experiencing depression and anxiety and crime goes up. As the weather becomes more and more extreme, as uh, droughts and wildfires, storms and flash floods are becoming more and more common, and usually in the most impoverished places in the world, this is an issue of justice as much as it is an issue of the climate. We can't simply pull the duvet over ourselves and hope that it's all just a bad dream or a hoax that will be uncovered. 
This is our reality. And it can be terrifying. It's hard not to feel paralyzed by it sometimes. But we're not doomed. We're not doomed. In November 1820, the whaling ship from Nantucket, Massachusetts, named the Essex, was attacked and sunk by a sperm whale. It was the true story behind Herman Melville's fictional novel, Moby Dick. In his book, In the Heart of the Sea, about the demise of the Essex, the author Nathaniel Philbrick describes the deeply religious whaling merchants of Nantucket as being surely convinced that they had been called by God to maintain a peaceful life on land while raising bloody havoc on the sea. And when the fire of 1846, just a couple of decades later, destroyed much of the town, the worst affected area was on the waterfront, where the sperm whale oil that had been boiled down from the whale blubber was stored. The blaze burnt so hot, it was beyond the capacity of the local firefighters to extinguish it. It was said in the town, writes Philbrick, that the Leviathan had finally achieved his revenge. The natural world has been a source of great wonder and joy and inspiration and amazement, and I certainly feel all of those things. Again, being at Ashburnham yesterday is a wonderful example of that. And it's inspired human beings from the beginning of time. But it is now just as much a source of anxiety and fear about what the future holds. It can feel as though climate change is simply nature taking its revenge for our exploitation and abuse of its riches. It's difficult to know what to do in such circumstances. And it's difficult to know what to say. What words can we put to this? These kind of feelings of fear. There might be other things in your life that cause you to fear. And this is where the Psalms, Jesus' own hymn book, are profoundly helpful for articulating fear. One of my favorites is Psalm 88, where the psalmist says, I am overwhelmed with troubles. Even these deep guttural feelings can be brought before God in worship and in prayer. Last week, Prinothy talked us through Psalm 27, where David was experiencing something like terror at the hands of his enemies. And yet he was able to say to himself, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? The Psalms often trade in this language around fear. About a third of the Psalms directly reference it. But the majority of those Psalms don't talk about fearing one's enemies or fearing one's circumstances, or fearing trial and tribulation, or fearing evil. They talk about fearing God. Being afraid of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a prevalent theme throughout the Old Testament. So what is meant by the fear of the Lord This repeated refrain, it's not in Psalm 29, but it's in many of the Psalms. The fear of the Lord. It's in Proverbs as well. It's in lots of places. It's a peculiar phrase and one that might make us feel a bit uneasy because the concept of fear has taken on a wholly kind of negative connotation in regards to God. We don't want to feel afraid of God. 
take some of these uh, uncomfortable verses like Psalm 76. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. I think there are perhaps two tendencies in how we respond to these kind of attributes or this image of God. The first is that we convince ourselves that God is on our side. That God holds the same views and the same political alignments that we do. That God's power to judge and his condemnation is of evil is reserved for all of those sinners out there and not us who believe. And that is false. One of my favorite preachers, a guy called Jason Michelli, uh, summed it up succinctly when he said, humans are sinners. Christians are humans. Therefore, Christians are sinners. Not only are we sinners, but if anything, the power of God to judge falls even harder upon us who believe than it does on those who do not. We put ourselves in the firing line first. This is what the church uh, commemorates and, uh, and celebrates in a way on Ash Wednesday before the Lenten season and Easter. When reflecting on the Civil War in the United States, President Abraham Lincoln, the ever thoughtful and theologically reflexive president, said of the two sparring armies, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing the bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. His own purposes. Your perceived purpose, your perceived good, is never actually quite as good as God's purpose and God's good. His purposes are always greater and more good than we can imagine. The second tendency in dealing with these difficult bits is to want to domesticate God. We just don't dwell in those difficult passages. We, we ignore them. The, the ones which talk of God's wrath and his power and his might and his dominion and his judgment. We skip over these attributes of God. We combat this idea of being afraid of God by saying, well, when we say the fear of the Lord, what we're really just talking about is reverence. Reverencing God. And that's true. We absolutely should reverence God, the creator of the universe, who created all of these wonderful, amazing things, who sustains you and I with our existence. We should revere God. But if we make out that fear is only about reverence, we're missing out on an integral aspect of God's character. Both of these tendencies are forms of idolatry. Both are trying to make God conform to our image and be shaped as to be suitable for us. But we should fear God and we should want God to be wrathful and angry and judgmental and condemn evil and injustice, condemn wickedness. We should want God to be like that. But I think this psalm and many other places in Scripture show us that we do have legitimate reason to be afraid of God. Perhaps uh, passages like Psalm 29, they don't allow us to over-sentimentalize 
or domesticate God. We often major on all the nice attributes of God that we find in the Bible that God is loving and kind and compassionate and patient and merciful and graceful and all of this is true and wonderful and good and we celebrate it. But we need to temper those attributes of God as well with the kind that we find often depicted and described throughout the Old Testament. God is both a God of love and the God of the hurricane. God is both a God of compassion and a God whose glory thunders. God is a God of mercy and one whose voice flashes forth flames of fire. God is a God of patience and a God who shakes the wilderness. God is a God of grace and a God who causes the oaks to whirl, who strips the forest bare. You very rarely see that kind of devastation in a stained glass window. The image of God in this and other Psalms and portions of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is a pretty terrifying one. But they're there not to foster in us a kind of insidious fear like the ankle grabber or like many people crave from horror movies. It's a fear of the sheer power of God. We should be afraid of God because he's powerful. It's a fear of our inability to get a handle on God. It's a fear of our inability to make God conform to the image that we would prefer. Like that blazing fire in Nantucket, God is entirely out of our control. We are completely helpless to hem him in. The 4th century bishop, St. Augustine of Hippo, who you can can probably tell I'm a bit of a fan of St. Augustine because he tends to make it into most of my talks. There is the, he said this, he once said this to the Bible. There is the slightest difference between the Old and New Testaments, fear and love. And it would be very easy to misunderstand the great African saint here as though the God of the Old Testament is qualitatively different from the God of the New, that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and angry and the God of the New Testament is nice and kind. Does anyone else, I feel like I've heard that before quite a few times. But that is to misunderstand what Augustine means here. After all, just a couple of centuries earlier, someone who Augustine would have been well aware of was a chap called Marcion of Sinope, or Sinope, who went as far as saying that the vengeful, belligerent God, Yahweh, the creator of the world, the God depicted in the Old Testament, is not the loving father who sent Jesus Christ. That's what he believed. They're two different gods. And as a result, he said, well, we should just get rid of the Old Testament. We don't need that at all. Or we can just pick out the bits that we like and keep those and get rid of the rest of it. He he basically ended up getting rid of like one or two, apart apart from one or two verses of pretty much everything. That was his idea. The fearsome God of the Old Testament was to be rejected in favor of the loving father of Jesus. And thankfully, the church at the time had enough sense to see that Marcion was an idiot. Uh, and you're a fool. You cannot understand Jesus Christ without the Old Testament. You cannot understand who Jesus is and the way he came and the Father that loves him and that sent him without the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the only Bible Jesus' apostles would have known. The Old Testament is just as authoritative as the New Testament, both back then and even now for us today. You've got to read it. You've got to spend time in it. The, the diocese that we're part of, the Diocese of Ch- Chichester, uh, we're currently um, uh, doing a year of the Old Testament. So churches all around uh, the diocese are preaching on the Old Testament for this very reason. Uh, 
So Marcion was proven wrong and he was declared a heretic and I think he met some grisly uh, end as a result as well. Uh, probably burnt at the stake or something. Marcion's wrong. And in 1624, the Anglican cleric and uh, poet John Donne preached a sermon on the fear of the Lord in which he quoted Augustine. He said, the Old Testament is a testament of fear and the New Testament is a testament of love. And this is what he gets exactly right. He says, yet in this, they grow all one. That we determine the Old Testament in the New and that we prove the New Testament by the Old so that the two Testaments grow one Bible. He went on to say that this fear is inchoative love. It's love without any language yet. And this love is consummate fear. It's fear that's been fulfilled in love. Before rounding off with this brilliant line. The love of God begins in fear. And the fear of God ends in love. And that love can never end. For God is love. The love of God begins in fear. And the fear of God ends in love. And that love can never end. For God is love. Another of my favorite theologians, Fleming Rutledge, put it like this. If we are to truly understand the miracle of God's mercy and loving kindness, we need also to know the might, majesty, dominion, and power of God. We can't fully grasp the magnitude of what God has done for us unless we have some sense of the unimaginable power that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ possesses. God's love is incomprehensible without God's might, without God's wrath, without God's sense of justice and righteousness. I often think about this, I think about a lot of things in this, in this way. I often think about this in, in terms of the wizard Gandalf from uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's epic tale. This wizard who, on the one hand, we have this, this cheeky chap who likes to make fireworks and smoke a pipe and, and drink beer at the pub. And then on the other hand, this guardian of the good, this powerful guardian, who when faced with unimaginable darkness and evil, as he did with the great fire demon in the minds of Mori, if you know it, you know it, I'm sorry if you don't, but you need to know it, unleashes his full power, that power being both displayed in acts of great might, but most keenly felt when Gandalf the wizard stepped into the abyss to save his friends from death at the hands of the Balrog. And that's the clincher. Here's why despite being afraid of God and God's power, we can trust him. God proves his trustworthiness by stepping into the void for each of us, for you. All evidence would seem to suggest that if we had the power to unleash hurricanes and whirlwinds and flash floods and all these things, that we would use it to destroy our perceived enemies. God proves his power instead by becoming utterly powerless, by withholding his power to judge and condemn and his rightful power to punish evil. He withholds it and instead absorbs all of our hatred, our cruelty, our malice, our will to dominate, our pride, our evil, our sin. He absorbs it all into his own body and puts it to death upon the cross. 
And it is this dangerous, yet majestic God. The God of thunder and wind, waves and water, flame and flood. The God who speaks to the waves saying, thus far and no further. It is this God that we find lying asleep in the stern of a boat upon the Sea of Galilee. It is this God who, when a lethal storm comes up, a storm, uh, I'm told, that the sort of which can whip up even to this day on that lake, it is this God who awakes and rebukes the wind and the sea and says to the sea, be silent, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to his disciples, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Just as God said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. The word of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the incarnate creator of the universe, is enough to quiet any storm and bring a great calm. This is the God that invites us into conversation with him. He invites us to speak up. He wants us, he wants to hear us. We are invited into the conversation of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son of God is the one who prays for us and us with him. The Spirit of the God is the one who dwells within us, who guides, comforts, and transforms us into the people we cannot imagine ourselves to be. The Almighty Father is the one who, as Martin Luther King Jr. put it, bends the arc of history towards justice. This three-person God, this all-powerful, mighty God is working all things together for your good. There are many things in this world that we can be afraid of. But as John Donne also said, he that fears God fears nothing else. They that fear God, that's all of you, have no need to fear anything else. This is why I think the psalmist quips that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They that fear God fear nothing else. If this Jesus is Lord of the universe, then all other fears pale into insignificance so that however much the storms of this life may batter you within and without, you may put your hands, your life into the the hands of the man from Galilee. Sure, and true, and confident that whatever befalls us, whatever wreckage the storms have already wrought in our life, and whatever storms lie ahead of us, he will bring us home. Thanks for tuning in to the HDH Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with someone you think would appreciate it? And be sure to subscribe to our channel to get notified when new episodes are published. Thanks again for listening and we hope you have a great day.